We're hearing the lyric consort of Northeastern Pennsylvania performing a piece many of their followers consider their signature tune. The Ave Maria of Franz Bebo. The Los Angeles Philharmonic points to the work's beautiful blend of medieval chant and warm 20th century harmonies. And as such, it is music the lyric consort is perfectly suited to perform. And you can understand why when we learn that the ensemble was founded in 1993 to pursue historically informed performances of a cappella pieces from the Middle Ages and Renaissance. And over the years, they've broadened their repertoire to include a range of works and styles up to and including the present day. The 2022-2023 season marks the 30th anniversary of the Lyric Consort, and they've been including favorite pieces from the past in their concerts this year, and that includes the Ave Maria by Franz Bebel in their December concert. What's pure serendipity is remarks made by Franz Bebel in talking about his internationally popular work. According to Stacy Horn, Bebel admitted to a friend, I'm just a little composer of little songs. There's only one Beethoven, only one Mozart. But there are many people who speak music. Therefore, we must find our niche, find what we do best, and do it while we can. Words of Franz Bebel. As we listen to Alan Baker and Francis McMullen talk about the 30-year history of the Lyric Consort, they will say something similar. They have been recognized widely, and they are respected broadly, but they do their remarkable work mostly here among us. Further still, returning to Franz Bebel's words, we must find what we do best and do it while we can, there is something of an echo there, as we'll soon recognize, in words of poet Walt Whitman from the poem As Time Draws Nigh newly set by composer Richard Wargo in loving memory of Dr. Stephen Thomas, longtime member of the Lyric Consort, a work to be premiered on this Sunday afternoon's concert. Dr. Alan Baker, tenor and artistic director, and Francis McMullen, bass, paid a visit to the WVIA studios to reflect on the past 30 years in anticipation of this Sunday's concert titled My Spirit Sang All Day at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Scranton. The group started in late winter of 1993 at St. Peter's Cathedral in Scranton, and the music director there, Maria Zengen, had been tasked with putting together a scola cantorum to perform some a cappella motets during Lent. And she had a couple of good cantors, and out of that, 
made a four-voice a cappella choir. And that consisted of Janet Scarantino at that time. Now she's Janet Thatcher. Karen Kalinowski, Greg Zarnowski on tenor, and myself as bass. So the requirement there was like an 8.30 Sunday service preceding the pontifical masses, and that would be some service music and then an a cappella motet of some sort that would change every week. And then Lent was done, and it was Easter, and the singers all decided, hey, you know, this is kind of fun to sing this music. Let's see if we can keep this going. So that's how it started. We tried to put together some repertory and find some performance opportunities and even put together a demo tape, I believe. There's rumors of that floating around somewhere. This is the only artifact I brought in, that there was this lyric consort before fall of 94 when I came on the scene. Alan, you're holding an actual cassette, a cassette tape. Yeah. It says lyric consort 4 as one for information, and it has some phone numbers, and it has some repertoire in the back that, that I don't know. Yeah. I think this was probably used for... Uh, Gig hunting or something, yes, you know, yes. weddings, services, that type of thing. I believe the contact number had a 717 exchange. Mm-hmm. That's how old it is. I think we did do a few weddings in the early days. And we also discovered that there wasn't the greatest amount of repertoire for strictly four voices SATB, much more for five, six voices and more. So then while it was nice to only have four voices, a quartet, it became apparent that maybe we needed a few more singers to make this viable. Guidance was, artistic guidance was provided by Maria Zengen, uh, one of her colleagues from down in the Lehigh Valley, Tom Dressler. We have a few other folks in the early days that kind of helped us out in that regard, but it, it really began to look more and more that we needed more singers and maybe some more expertise in the area of early music and uh, informed performance practice. And that was about the time that Alan Baker came to Northeast Pennsylvania. And what brought you to Northeastern Pennsylvania at the exact time you were needed? Work. I, <laughs> I took a position as the choir director at, at Wilkes University. And that fall, I got a call from, I think from Karen, saying, hey, you want to come up and, and sing? You know, people were just bringing multiple copies of, of different music and they were just trying things out. I get a little foggy at that point. Uh, all I can really say is I know then that by the end of that fall, we did a Christmas concert with a group of eight in Dalton at the First Baptist Church in Dalton, now closed, <laughs> and also at St. Stephen's. And in the spring, we did two concerts. We did a, a sacred Lenten Tudor music concert that we did at First Baptist in uh, Wilkesbury, also now closed, but by the spring, Late spring, then we did a concert of Italian madrigals, and we did it at St. Luke's and St. Stephen's. And so at that point, we were kind of locked in. And the following year, and all of those concerts were just kind of, when we felt like we were ready, we just kind of did them and word of mouth, or I don't know how you advertised anything back in 1994, but the next year we had a, a small little brochure, and we're trying to get people to buy a, like a season pass. There was no internet to speak of at that time, uh, no social media. If you wanted to do research, you had to go to a library or hang out with somebody who knew what they were doing and 
like Alan. Or who just had had a lot of music, personal library. That was then. This is now. And is it surprising to you, looking back, that you actually stayed the course and are now still performing? Did you ever look into the future, or you just took it season by season? In 1993, we didn't know what we didn't know then. We knew that the music we had in hand... When we sang together, it sounded good. We enjoyed it, and we thought, well, this is nice. Let's let's see what we can do with this. I had no idea that I would still be doing this music 30 years down the road, but we fell in with some very good singers and some excellent artistic guidance in the form of Alan Baker, and um, you know, we just kind of kept kept rolling along. Yeah, just, you know... Just kind of put one foot in front of the other. But you found an audience here. Yeah, yeah, we yeah we have. I mean, I think it has helped that we were all gainfully employed in other ways, and so we could we could take a night off to come and sing, and we could we could do concerts, and if we had a little money from the the ticket sales, that was great. But if we didn't, we weren't counting on it, you know, you know, to pay the bills, that type of thing. And you cited your venues, St. Luke's. And it seems like an ideal setting aesthetically, acoustically, for what it is you do, whether it be the most contemporary choral music or Renaissance. And you feel at home there, and you always have. St. Luke's has always been very supportive of the Lyric Consort. When the Consort formed, the rector at St. Luke's was Howard Stringfellow, who had come to St. Luke's from St. Thomas Fifth Avenue, I believe, was musically and liturgically astute, and he was very happy to offer rehearsal space and performance space to the burgeoning lyric consort, and uh, that relationship formed very early and has remained very strong. I think the other important artistic partner, as far as venues go, would be St. Stephen's Episcopal Pro-Cathedral in Wilkes-Barre. Almost from the beginning of the eight-voice ensemble, St. Stephen's has also been one of our major performance partners. We used to actually rehearse there, and our norm was to do the concert in Scranton on a Saturday night, and then less than 24 hours later, we'd show up at St. Stephen's in Wilkes-Barre, you know, and, and do it again. And frankly, we just kind of aged out of that. It just, it got harder for the voices, I think, to recover in that quick amount of time. And and so for a number of years now, we've only performed, for the most part, we've only performed the concerts at St. Luke's. Though this spring, we did go back and sing that all Renaissance concert at St. Stephen's. Beautiful acoustic. And you've been recognized outside the area. Yeah, early on, some, some things happened in like that first decade that I think really energized us and kind of let us know that yeah we, we can we can do this and we, we should keep doing this in uh, 1999 there was a program called pin pad it was run by the pew charitable trust uh the vera Hines foundation uh mid-atlantic arts foundation and it's called pennsylvania performing arts on tour and you submitted a application you auditioned basically and we we were we were the only northeast pennsylvania ensemble accepted to that roster now Maybe we were the only Northeast Pennsylvania Ensemble that tried to get on that roster, but we got on there, and they they underwrote performances for us across Pennsylvania and up into New York, Maryland, West Virginia, 
and and so that was that was kind of nice to kind of take our music beyond NEPA and and see how people responded to that. In summer of 2000, we were invited to sing at the American Choral Directors Association Summer Conference in State College, which is singing for a bunch of choir director professionals. It was a big deal for us, and that performance went pretty well. And two years later, we got invited to sing for the Eastern Regional Conference of American Choral Directors. And so that was, on, well, you, you know, because you, you and Chris Norton came, it was on Valentine's Day at Heinz Chapel in Pittsburgh, and we did a celebration of love where we sang love songs, and you and Chris read love poetry, and we all went out there together. And around that same time in 2001, we did the televised concert, A Field Afar, which was for Memorial Day that uh, VIA TV took the big truck and everything to St. Stephen's and we recorded that. So those were some of the highlights, I think, of that first, uh, that first decade, which kind of kept us going and, and let us know we were, we were on the right track. Did you feel that you wanted to do CDs or that you felt you should do CDs, so like the cassette as a calling card, or was it something that you just felt you wanted to experience with each other? I don't know about Alan, but um, growing up studying music in public schools, primarily in bands and in concert choirs and so forth, it was often the opportunity to have programs recorded and then made available to you know friends and family. And in those days, they were LP records, which you know you get so many pressed for a certain fee, and uh, you know that was kind of a big deal. And something here you can hold in your hand and put on the, the hi-fi and uh, that was neat so for me that's always kind of been something special that you have a, a, a memento a physical remembrance of that event and okay in the case of high school music events um, it, it has its uh, limitations but you know for me that's always been something special to be able to make a recording both as an artifact, but also hopefully to, to share with other people. And, you know, as time has gone on and technology has progressed, when did we decide that we thought we were maybe good enough to actually start selling them? The very first one, we, um, it was Christmas from St. Stephen's, and it's, it's still a nice CD. I, I listened to it, but we... You know, it wasn't made. It was made locally. They were just, they were just burned, and and they, they, they stopped working after a while. And I'll still have people that will ask me to burn a new one for them, but they weren't like I think it's called glass mastering or, or all that kind of stuff. I have a basement full of the things because it was always almost as cheap to buy five hundred as it was to buy one hundred. So I don't know what I was thinking, but. <laughs> I have a basement full of full of CDs, but they're nice to to do because you know you you do the concert and as well as you've prepared. Sometimes you just not someone's not feeling quite so well in Scranton. There's always a siren, you know, it's guaranteed sirens and that kind of thing. So to devote some time to to come back to the space, multiple takes, and try to get something that really kind of maybe shows you better than you were in concert, but but maybe like. This is how everything sounded at one time when it was at its very best, you know, during the rehearsal process. What did you all do during COVID? How did you navigate those years? We were pretty sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, for a lot of reasons, but it, it was really difficult just not to be able to get together and sing. 
enjoy each other's company. And, you know, it's just sort of like we got put on hold for a long, long time. Um, I think Alan eventually came up with some creative ideas on how we might still be able to perform and share music, even though public performances in a concert gathering were not an option. Right. Well, we canceled, you know, everyone canceled their concerts that spring. But that that next fall, actually, uh, Lackawanna County, to their credit, uh, the arts and culture, made some grant money available for interesting projects of trying to how to how to make art, you know, in COVID. And so we 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 got together and we we practiced. We were all separated and we were wearing masks and we couldn't hear each other very well. But we learned some pieces and we actually had Carl Schinko come in and record them and and we used them as part of that service of lessons and carols that Choral Society was the kind of the main mover and, and shaker on that. Choral Society actually made a like an online one of these group recording type things, but we pulled on a lot of archival stuff from recordings and matched it all up. Carl Schinko went around with me and we we videoed all these beautiful stained glass windows and stuff in churches in the region, and uh, different people read the the lessons. And it was a online streaming lessons and carols that we made available for about three weeks at a time when people still weren't really going back to to church, and we might have really been missing the Christmas season in church. And they got to see, you know, beautiful visuals while hearing hearing the lessons and carols and hearing hearing good singing. We talked about you're finding your audience. People I talk to always say, oh, but I love it when they sing the Ave Maria by Franz Bebel. That's almost in some quarters your signature tune. How did that happen? Well, that was just the hot piece when we started in 1994. Chanticleer had just recorded it. They were touring it with it. And, you know, it is a beautiful piece, but it was it was just the rock rock star hit, you know, of the time, and it, and it worked because it's seven parts. So we were able to yeah, we were able to cover all all of the parts. And yeah, we did it this we did it this fall, this uh, December we did it. Yeah, uh, the Danny Boy arrangement that we we've sang of that we did a lot. We got a lot of mileage out of Danny Boy um, and the Welsh lullaby. We don't like to talk about it, but you all went through a terribly wrenching time when you lost one of your singers, Stephen Thomas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you obviously could come together as a family because you are and have been a family. How did, how did you come back to where you could sing again together without him? Well, we, we just kept going. He, he was in the hospital um, where he was, he was having some treatments, and you know he couldn't sing. But we were in the middle of a concert preparation, so we 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 brought. I think I think Jordan Markham came in one rehearsal, and we just did this concert. And so that was just kind of like you know crisis mode or whatever. And then uh, I think Jason Brocious came in and helped us, and I think it helped that that we knew we knew Jason. And then Frank Spencer came in, and we knew Frank. So, so it was. It wasn't like here's some person we don't even know sitting in Stephen's seat. But it, it was difficult. We're premiering a, a piece Sunday. We we had two commissions in memory of Stephen, and one of them we did last May at his big memorial service called "Our Voices Linger," by James Eakin. But Richard Wargo, you want to tell them a little bit about Richard's piece and what what text he picked. 
Richard has been a good friend to the Lyric Consort for well over a decade, and uh, he is involved with the Sembrick Institute up in Lake George, New York, which is about opera singing and uh, Marcella Sembrick. They have, a, we, they have a summer concert series right there on the lake in the little house where she would teach her lessons. It's beautiful. He's yes. had us up there a couple of times. So we thought it was fitting to approach Richard for a piece to honor the memory of Stephen. And he came up with a text by Walt Whitman, As Time Draws Nigh. And uh, so we will be premiering that work this coming Sunday. And in fact, Richard attended rehearsal last night and gave us a few constructive remarks, but in general was very, very pleased with the result. And we're, we're grateful to, we're grateful to honor our friend. It's a beautiful text. And I think it's a text that Stephen probably would really appreciate it. Probably actually more than the, the text of that first commission, which is a little too saccharine, a little too hard on your sleeve, perhaps for Stephen's style. But this text is, it's beautiful. It, it kind of goes through a lot of different emotions fairly quickly, but ultimately it says, we're here, we do something positive, we make a difference, and that, that is enough. And that is, that is the most important thing. All kinds of speculations about anything else. I do think, I talked to Zuman Savage, Stephen's wife, and she, she agreed that she thought he, he would have liked this text and would have agreed with the sentiment or the, the message that it shares. So we're excited to, to premiere that on Sunday. And it seems to me, and not that you would any way want to get on board with that, but as you just put it that way, Alan, the idea, we're here, we do something, we do something positive. You all could be thinking and looking at each other, too, after you sing that, and of course you're singing it for Stephen, but you might, as an ensemble, think, we've come, we've come together, we've been through trials and wonderful moments, and we've done something good. I hope you can feel that. We've done something good in the midst of all of us here because we've needed what you bring because no one else brings what you all do to our region. Yeah. We put that in the program. We put that piece at the end of a set of music and text about time well spent. And um, the Edmund Waller, Go Lovely Rose text, how small a part of time they share that are so wondrous, sweet, and fair. That's kind of the, the ending line. And then a Sarah Teasdale poem. It's called Grace Before Sleep, and it's about gratitude. Just like you said, it, some of the lines in that says, Each one of us has walked through storm, fled wolves along the road, but here the hearth is wide and warm. And for this shelter and this light, accept, O Lord, our thanks tonight. Beautiful, beautiful piece, beautiful poem. And I know we often talk about chamber music as a conversation between and among musicians where you don't need words and that the conversation is deep and the exchange of energy is real between and among instrumentalists. But I'm sure the same can be said about singers, who, especially those who have been singing together for so long, that yes, you use words in a beautiful way, and you talk about what you need when you're rehearsing and getting things ready. But I can't imagine that, that you can talk and put in words, probably, about the bonds between and among you as friends. I think that one of the things that has contributed to the enduring success of 
the ensemble is our commitment to music, our respect for the art, and the enjoyment we derive out of singing together as a group and trying to do it well to serve the music as an art form. And I think it didn't take too long for the Young Lyric Consort to kind of get beyond aspirations as you know, great solo artists. Um, we're going to set the world on fire with how terrific we sing as individuals and to work together to create an artistic ensemble product. I think that's unique and important. And that's one of the reasons that so many of us in the group are still together and still doing this, that we try to do it well. And I think we generally succeed in that endeavor. And you know, our audiences appreciate that. You know, I would say over three decades, something that started off as just an ensemble has moved in the direction of kind of a family type of thing. We, we've, we've sang for some of the members' weddings. We've sang for the baptisms of all of Leslie's children. We've sang for members' parents' funerals. And, of course, we sang for Stephen. And um, I suppose in a big, in a, in a larger metropolitan area where you just had tons of tons of singers to choose from, that you could swap this singer out. Oh, something better came along, you know. But that that's never really been what we were about. It was kind of about let's make the best music we can with with the group. And I I hope everyone that's ever sung with us, you know, has felt welcome. You know, even if they were there for one concert, as just kind of a temporary fill in or a couple of years, or a couple of decades. But it's been a welcome place to be. And it's, it's, it's tricky because when there are eight people, there's nowhere to hide. So you can kind of couch it for a while in general, but ultimately if you want to fix something, you usually have to get down to like somebody says to someone else, you are not doing that as well as the rest of us, or you are not doing that. I know you think you're doing that right, but it's, but it's wrong. And, and so there's a little bit of family like that, that we can, you have to, you have to talk to each other in, in pretty blunt ways sometimes. But I think because we, we know each other, you know, it comes from, like Fran says, it comes from love of the music. And it's, it also comes from love of each other or whatever. No one's, no one's doing it to be hurtful. We all want the same thing. So you just, you, you kind of bring your thick skin to rehearsal and, and deal with it. You've laid out one segment of the performance on Sunday, but tell us a little bit more about what will be part of the concert. The overall theme of Sunday's concert is My Spirit Sang All Day, uh, which is one of the pieces on the program, a piece by the English composer Gerald Finzi. It is an eclectic program, uh, when the ensemble started out, we thought we were an early music ensemble, you know, nothing after 1700. And I think in our second decade, we decided that, uh, hey, maybe there's, there's more music out there that we should explore. And uh, Alan's been wonderful in creating programs that kind of run the gamut from late medieval music all the way up to the present day. So we start the concert with Juana Baraka, which is a setting of a Kenyan folk song. 
and then we move on to a Renaissance text, Ave Verum Corpus, by Daniel Elder, who is a 21st century composer, and then Thy Will Be Done, which is uh, a setting of the, the Our Father. Alan, do you want to talk about the Roger Petrich? Yeah, we're doing uh, choral variations on All Holy Jesus. This is another piece that the whole year has been spent doing a lot of stuff that we've done in the past. It's like a tour or whatever, getting the band back together. But it's a, you know, it's a famous passion hymn, chorale, Lutheran chorale. And so it's a, it's a, it's a great tune for, for some really exquisite kinds of, of dissonance. So it's, it's, that's our little homage to dissonance. And, but then we'll, after that, we'll just sing some Renaissance torch songs, which will be, I mean, dissonant in their own way, but, but, but beautifully dissonant. And we can find you. Three o'clock this Sunday, the 21st at St. Luke's in Scranton. We've got a great reception coming after the concert. So St. Luke's, downtown Scranton, 3 o'clock on this Sunday, the 21st, May 21st. Dr. Ellen Baker, tenor and artistic director, and Francis McMullen, bass and founding member of the Lyric Consort, speaking with us about the concert that will mark the conclusion of the 30th year of music making. And that is Sunday, May 21st at 3 o'clock at St. Luke's Episcopal Church on Wyoming Avenue in downtown Scranton. As we heard, it will be a varied program and perhaps the most exciting part will be the premiere of As the Time Draws Nigh by composer Richard Wargo from right here in Scranton. It is the first performance, and it's a work commissioned by the Lyric Consort in loving memory of Dr. Stephen Thomas. My Spirit Sang All Day, Sunday, May 21st at 3 o'clock at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, Wyoming Avenue in Scranton. For more information on the web, lyricconsort.org, lyricconsort.org.